Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. As you do, let me just uh, add my um, reflections with Aaron on our Shepherds Conference we went to this last week. It was a great time uh, spent with the men hearing, I think it was 18, is that right? 18 sermons on inerrancy. Some of them were more like lectures, but uh, it was great to be able to go back and uh, uh, really be reminded of why we do what we do. Opening up a Bible and seeing that every single word is important. You know, sometimes I, 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 we, we joke about it, but I, I, I kind of, I wonder if, if it's okay to be going so slowly through Romans, to be, to be st- stopping and looking at every view. And, and yet when you understand the doctrine of inerrancy, really every word screams for a, a series. We won't quite do that this morning, but we'll be looking again at adoption. Follow along as I read in Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. It starts with the word and. We're not going to start there because that's what we're going to look at in our, in our uh, sermon, but you got to back it up. Verse 16 says, 16 says, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if so, if children... Heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be also glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I distinctly remember the first time I was introduced to what I later knew, uh, found to be called a stereogram. You know what a stereogram is? How many of you know what a stereogram is? Some people have collections of these. A stereogram is a picture within a picture. It's a typically uh, like a picture that looks like a repeating pattern, but when you stare at it and you look more closely, a three-dimensional image arises out of there. Have you seen these? Where you stare, you got to move it closer and further away to find it. First time I had this encounter with this stereogram, though, was, was pretty discouraging. I was invited into a friend's office. These were brand new. At least they were brand new to me. He had this uh, probably two-foot-by-two-foot two picture on his wall, and it was this stereogram. It looked like repeating patterns, and I couldn't figure out what it was. He said, stare at that and tell me what you see. So I stared at it and told him what I saw. I see a repeating pattern of colors. He said, look closer. I looked closer, and I saw a repeating pattern of colors. He said, no, there, is a, there are some dolphins jumping out of the water. Now, I grew up in Tennessee. You ever, you ever been snipe hunting? That's what I thought was happening here. The, the, there's some video, there's some camera somewhere looking at me acting like a fool where this guy is telling me there are dolphins on this ridiculous poster. It got worse. A friend came into the office and uh, he said, have you seen these new stereograms? He said, oh yeah, and he looks at it and without saying anything, he says, oh, I see the dolphins. Now I'm really looking for the camera. There's no way. These people are out of their mind. I was convinced that there was nothing on this ridiculous little poster. So then he gave me an assignment. He says, I want you to get your nose almost on the poster and slowly start backing up and just stare. As I was staring, I got back about three feet. And you're not going to believe what happened. 
there were dolphins in the picture. Three-dimensional. It, it took my breath. It, was, it, was, it just freaked me out, to be honest with you. I couldn't believe that they were actually there. That's a truth that's obviously there if you have the eyes to see it. But you have to get focused on it, right? You, got, you have to look at it correctly. You have to get your eyes in tune to see it. There's a truth in the New Testament that works a little bit like a stereogram. What I mean by that is it's, it's everywhere. It's always there, but you don't always see it until you focus correctly. This verse has that truth. So I'm going to ask you to look at it again and see if you can tell what it is. Think of it like that stereogram. And, verse 17, if children, if adopted children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do you see it? Do you hear it? Do you know what it is? It is the doctrine of the resurrection. I think you could probably find almost every paragraph in the New Testament. And if you look closely enough or back up just a little bit, if you can adjust your focus, you see the emphasis and the accent on the resurrection. Here it's called the glory to be revealed to us. We'll be glorified with him that one great day when faith will become sight, when things will be different then than they are now. And once you train your mind to look for and find the resurrection, you'll see it everywhere. It's impossible for the, 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 um, the men in the book of Acts to preach without talking about the resurrection. That's what they were in trouble most for, both the resurrection of Jesus and the promised resurrection of believers. Read Paul's epistles. Everything is based on that great and glorious revelation of Jesus at the resurrection to us and us to be like him in that great day. One of the groups with which Jesus was in constant battle during his lifetime. Not only the Pharisees, but the Sadducees. And the distinctive uh, feature of their resurrection was that they did not believe in the resurrection. It's funny because we were, I had been uh, putting my notes together in between sessions all week at the Shepherds Conference. And the very last session, I had just written the section on this. And uh, John MacArthur preaches on this passage. So it was was uh, even more dramatically uh, vivid to me. And one of the most intense interactions with the Sadducees, you can either look there or follow along in Luke chapter 20. We find something out that's, that's related to the doctrine of adoption and this stereogram of resurrection. And Jesus says it so succinctly. Let me give you the full context in Luke chapter 20, verse 27. Now there came to him, to Jesus, some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. This life is it. They were Epicureans in a sense. You might as well have as much fun as you can during this life because this is it. And they questioned Jesus saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us, for us, that if a man's brother dies, having a wife and he's childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, what you don't see at first glance is this is all about inheritance. This is all about heirs. You see what he's saying? Where does his land go? Where do his possessions go? Now, there were seven 
brothers. And the first took a wife and died childless. And the second and the third married her. This is the Leverite law where you were, you would, uh, you would, uh, if you were unmarried, you would take your brother's widow so that you would keep the, the possessions in the, in the family. Well, this is, a, this is a lot of them. This is seven of them. You have to think that they were successively getting younger, you would hope. A third and married her. In the same way, all seven died, leaving no children. Just an illustration, just, a, just an anecdote they're trying to trap Jesus with. Finally, the woman dies. Now, here's the question. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. They're trying to say, Jesus, come on. You don't believe in the resurrection, do you? Because if so, when you get to heaven and you have, you've had multiple wives, which was allowed by, by uh, uh, Deuteronomic law, by uh, the law of Moses, if, if a widow can remarry, reiterated in the New Testament, then when you get to heaven, who's your spouse if you've had multiple spouses on earth? Actually, an interesting question. Jesus said to them, actually... The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are like angels. Now watch this. And are sons of God. Here it is. Being, what does it say? Sons of the Resurrection, sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. In other words, that's his present tense. Even though they were dead, he's speaking in the present tense. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have the courage to question him any longer about anything. Jesus said that those who are in Christ, those who come to faith in him, become, I love this phrase, sons of the resurrection. That's exactly what's in focus here in Romans chapter 8. It's exactly what Paul is talking about. It was for the resurrection that the early apostolic preachers were noticed. It was for the resurrection they were ridiculed. It was for the resurrection they were litigated against and for the resurrection that they suffered and died. Paul constantly makes reference to the resurrection, to life after death, and says that if there is no life after death, then of all people in the world, Christians should be most pitied. He basically says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection, if there's no life after death, if there's no heaven, we're really blowing it. We should be Epicureans. We should be like the Sadducees. Just enjoy life as you can. This is it. Yet Paul constantly overlays his doctrine over the resurrection and also embeds it. In what he's saying. In the text before us, we find Paul again making reference to glory, that great day, to the resurrection, that there is indeed life after death, and that it matters a lot for a believer to look correctly at it. It's that stereogram. Do you see it? Can you adjust your focus? Do you see what the real picture is here? It's about a life that's gonna last a lot longer than the one in which we are in now. The accent on the resurrection in Paul's description of how God's adoption as a father to Christians as his children 
is remarkable here. It's amazing. It's incredible. He's describing what Jesus meant when he identified us as sons of the resurrection. How do we become a son, an inheritor, a child of a concept of the resurrection? Well, as we saw in our last study, we're made sons and daughters by God through the process of spiritual adoption. He adopts us. He chooses us. He cherry picks us out of the orphanage of this world and causes us to be spiritual and spiritually related to him. Here in verses 17 and 18, we're introduced to the implications of that doctrine. We found it out in the previous verses. Um, You've not received verse, um, well, go back to the 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons. There's the concept of childhood, sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit, a nature of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And we said that's not a, that's not a term of immaturity. It's a term of intimacy. It's not, little baby said that. That's Abba. It's daddy. And it doesn't just mean what a child says to an adult as if they are immature and it's all they can say. This is the word that Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane when he cried out to the Father. And he said, Abba. It's a term of intimacy, of knowledge, of knowing him. That spirit testifies, the Holy Spirit rather, testifies himself with our spirit, that we are children of God, and now we pick it up with the implication. And if children, so what? We looked last week at the fact that we're children of God by adoption. Now he gives us the implication, the so what? And if children, then let's find out what that means. And as we do so, I want to show you three implications, three implications of the doctrine of adoption, being adopted by God. This is the so what of the passage we looked at last week. The first implication is this, a divine inheritance, a divine inheritance. And if children, now in three successive uh, phrases, he uses the same word, heir. If children of God, if adopted by God, if we are that, heirs also. Now that should have covered it. But then he says, heirs of God, and that should have covered it. But then he says, heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. Do you see the redundancy there? Anytime you see redundancy or repetition, especially in the epistles, this is like exclamation points. This is a massive point that Paul's making. Heirs, heirs, heirs. Heirs as children, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. This idea of becoming an heir of God is the result of becoming a child of God. And it's not isolated to Romans. Remember, um, you've, we've looked at this previous, previously, very briefly. Galatians 4, 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. Sonship or childhood to a father implies that you're an heir to that person. Titus 3, 7. Being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Concept of an heir is something with which we are familiar with here. Um, Even though we're not Italians, we're not in Rome, we still have the concept of being an heir. Every time you look at the concept of your will, you are thinking about heirs. Um, Not all people are 
able to pass on inheritance. I, I, uh, I didn't come from a family of great means. I, I had to pay personally for both of my parents' uh, burials and funerals. And um, there, I, I didn't receive much. And what I did was more of sentimental value and frankly, far more valuable than any kind of money I would, would have been left. But the concept of, of being an heir is something that Kim and I've talked about. And I have to tell you, this is, um, it's a humbling thing to about, think about inheritance. We were driving just a few years ago, we were in California, and um, it was very, uh, a very sobering moment. Uh, I have a collection of handmade knives, um, and I, I really like these handmade knives. They're made in Arkansas by a man named Bob Dozier. They're beautiful knives. I've collected them over years. So one of my sons says, Dad, can I have your, your pro guides knife? I said, well, no. <laughs> I hunt with that knife, no. He says, no, I mean when you die. <laughs> Before I could answer that and deal with this, this issue, the other one said, yeah, and I want your Arkansas Skinner. And the other one said, well, I want your guitar. The other one said, well, I want your shotgun. The other said, well, I want your rifle. And they began dividing up my life. <laughs> Literally in the back seat. Being an heir means receiving an inheritance. You get something out of it. Paul says, when you become an heir, a child of God, you become an heir of God which means there is an inheritance waiting for you. The connection Paul's making for us here is that our inheritance from God is aligned, very interestingly, look at the phrase, with Jesus. This is incredible. We're fellow heirs with Jesus. Now we're starting to understand what this is a little bit more. Think about it. God has blessed us, according to Ephesians, with every, remember what it says? Spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places. We have a sense of those now, but we don't have those fully now. That's our inheritance laid up for us later. They've been prepared according to the purpose of the works, uh, a purpose that works in all things after the counsel of God's will. Further, God has appointed his son Jesus, according to Hebrews 1, 2, get this, as the heir of, ready for this? All things. No dividing up. He's the heir of everything. And we are fellow heirs with him, which makes us also the heir of all things. That redefines what we live for. That redefines life, and it certainly redefines the afterlife. It recalibrates how we think of resources on this earth, recalibrates how we think of time and stewardship on this earth. Remember, Paul is writing to the Romans who are very familiar with the concept of a son losing, uh, or a father losing his inheritance to his family after he died without appointing an heir if he had no child or no son. So they adopted children to force and focus their inheritance. But let me tell you gloriously where this, this uh, analogy breaks down. It doesn't work right. And it doesn't work right in a good way. In our understanding, we get an inheritance when a parent does what? Dies. It's just the opposite here. We get our inheritance when we die. Meaning this is the shadow world. This is the anticipation. The inheritance comes when we 
die. Let me ask you again. Can you focus your eyes? Do you see the resurrection? Is your future reality living in heaven with Christ, with God, with the Father, enabled by the Spirit? Is that real to you? Is it something you long for, look forward to? Is it something that you believe in? Do you believe Matthew 25, 21? One day, Jesus will say, enter into the joy of your master. Is it joyful to think about that one day? Think of this reality. When Jesus prays in John 17, it's incredible. He says, Jesus talking to the Father, he says, the glory which you have given me, I will give to them that they may be one just as you and I are one. Wow. It's not just what we get, it's who we become. What is Jesus' glory there? Well, it's obviously his uh, uh, pre-incarnate state, but there's something more because in the context here, he defines his glory by his relationship with the Father. Glorify me with that relationship we had and glorify them with that relationship we'll share together in the solidarity of relationship. Wow. Meaning our greatest inheritance in, in heaven is God. Our greatest inheritance in heaven is faith becoming sight, really understanding, really seeing, changing our foolishness for wisdom. In other words, where the world looks at us as fools, one day, the greatest wisdom of every human will be when they, they stand before the Lord and realize that there is an inheritance in his hands, either to be missed by those who will be punished in hell or embraced by those who follow into heaven. It's a divine inheritance. You have something, some things, waiting for you in glory, in heaven, after the resurrection, after you die. We're heirs. Triple heirs, it says here. Heirs, as children, heirs of God. That's the divine heirs with Christ. And he inherits all things. Ephesians 1 says those are spiritual things. That's a pretty good thing to look forward to. I also think it's, it's, the, it's also more than just the relational side, even though that's the greatest side. The book of Revelation toward uh, the end, verses 20, 21, 22, goes to great lengths to describe for us the physical, can I say it, material, real, uh, uh, genuinely experienced dimensions of a believer's inheritance forever in heaven. Everything and anything you and I could enjoy in this life will be infinitely bettered in heaven. Infinitely bettered in heaven. I was on a flight yesterday and um, when you come over the Rockies, it's just remarkable when you fly from the west coast to the east or east to west. And just looking at the beauty of that. And I had this thought, thinking about this issue in, in the sermon today, I had this thought, I love mountains, I love hiking, I love streams, I love wildlife, I love the beauty of nature. This is a broken world, as we're going to see, by the way, in the next passage. The creation, is, the creation wants to get its inheritance. It's groaning as well. If you think this is great, what do you think the new heavens and new earth are going to be like? Everything that you can enjoy, every experience we have, as Edward says, all of our affections 
are created by God to enjoy specific blessings he's given to us. Our inheritance is spectacular, overwhelming. So much so that we're gonna find out in a minute, you gotta compare this world to the next. You have to constantly be comparing this world to the next. It will change your perspective. First implication of the divine doctrine of, of uh, adoption is we have a divine inheritance. We're gonna get Something special in the end. And let me just say what that is again. Spiritual, can't really tell you all that, what that is. It's not defined. Relational with, with God and the Father through Christ. And enjoyment and material. That's the new heavens and the new earth. Number two, there's also a traumatic connection we have to look at. A traumatic connection as an implication of the doctrine of adoption. Look right in the middle of verse 17, the word if. If, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified, there's the resurrection again, with him. This is a critical connection. This is a connection that the health and wealth gospel wants to ignore or reverse. That guaranteed to follow as an heir of God, a child of God, an adopted son or daughter of God is the reality of suffering. Now, it says, if we suffer with him, there's, <clears throat> there's so much commentary um, paper that's been, been uh, written on about this. So many trees have been killed. It's, what does this suffer mean? Some are absolutely adamant that this is only talking about suffering as related to the gospel. That it's only persecution. Indeed, we know that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's true. And I think that's a part of it. Others say, oh, no, no, no. Based on the rest of the chapter, you can obviously see that this suffering has way more to do with just our plight and life living in a broken world. The next passage is going to talk about the fact that the creation is groaning for redemption itself. We suffer because we live in a broken world. That's the whole uh, theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. I looked long and hard at this, and my question is, why, why isn't it both? Part of our suffering is because of our relationship with Christ, isn't it? And part of our suffering is because we live in a world that is cursed by sin, and the consequences are around us all the time. I think suffer means suffer in every dimension, but a Christian suffers differently because we do suffer because we're Christians. And our suffering is different because we perceive our suffering different as Christian. Suffering for and suffering with Christ is proof here of our future reality, of our inheritance with Jesus. That word if, if we suffer, it's the proof. You could actually translate that because we suffer, proven by the fact that we suffer Colossians 1.24, by the way, speaking of our suffering for Christ, I, I was reading some, um, uh, something not related to anything uh, we're preaching through right now about um, the Catholic notion of, of the perpetual re-sacrifice of Christ in the Mass. And they take that idea from this. Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for, you, for your sake, Paul says, 
And in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up, what's interesting here, filling up that which is lacking in Christ's suffering. So the idea, at least in Roman Catholic theology, is that Christ hasn't finished suffering. The mass causes him to suffer more and more because he's re-crucified every week or every time you have the, the mass. Is that really what's being said here? I think what it's saying is something very different. Paul is saying, since they can't get to Jesus, they will get to me, to us. If he took the cross for me, I will take the blows for him. So there is a dimension of this suffering which means that the world would love to continue to persecute Jesus, but since he's not here in bodily form, he is here in spiritual form and through us, the indwelling presence of Christ, he will receive the blows through our suffering. This harkens back, look back over to Romans 5 for a moment. We spent considerable time in this passage. It's so helpful to see this passage, so helpful. The grace of God and Paul allowing us to see our perspective that's needed in suffering in one word, one word is critical. Well, you gotta back up to Romans, uh, well, look at Romans 5.1, let's go all the way back, all the way back. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that's the, the um, uh, summary of the first four chapters, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And then that great statement, we exult, we emote, we, we overflow with joy. We exult in our hope of the glory of God. There's the resurrection of, again, by the way. And then he uses the same word on exult. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, in our suffering. Why? How? What are you talking about? And everything is defined by the next word. Knowing. Knowing that tribulation, the suffering, brings about perseverance. Knowing that that perseverance brings about proven character. Knowing that proven character brings about hope. And I love verse five. What do you need most when you're suffering? What do you want most for when you're suffering? Hope. Then he says, and hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the traumatic connection between suffering and inheritance is mitigated by the fact that we know that this suffering has a purpose. How many times have you said it? How many times have you thought it? You go to someone who's lost a loved one. You go to someone who's experienced physical trial. You go to someone who is, has an ongoing trial in any dimension of life. Someone who's faced with a, a terminal illness. You come to some tragic event and you find yourself with another believer intuitively saying, how can an unbeliever process this? How, how can you handle this without the perspective of a believer. That's what Paul's saying here with this knowing. That's what he's telling us here in Romans 8 about our suffering. We know something about it. We know that this world isn't it. We're the opposite of the Sadducees. We are sons of the resurrection. Paul is telling us that we should gladly bear under any suffering now because 
of a really important reason. Now, we're gonna transition to uh, our third implication here, but I gotta tell you something about it. Number three, a glorious comparison. Now, let me tell you something a little bit about um, exegesis, exposition, meaning uh, how... The hardest part of learning to preach, I think, is learning preaching units. How much do you preach? I mean, you can preach the whole Bible in one sermon. Life before the fall, life after the fall, salvation, life after the restoration in heaven. And you can do the whole Bible in one sermon. Where do you chop the sausage links off to decide how much to collect your thoughts around in a sermon? It's really hard in Romans 8 because there are so many... The Greek word is gar, they're for, they're becauses, they're all connected. So what I want to tell you before we dive into verse 18 is this. This is the last, uh, or this section attaches to the adoption. And so it's going to be a concluding thought of this little, little paragraph on adoption. But we're also going to look at verse 18 next, next, in our next study because it's also the introduction to the next passage on the creation, on glory. Really, really important to understand that sometimes a concluding thought is an introductory thought. It's very, very interesting to see that, that these things are connected and interwoven in ways that, that this is the same way we speak in English, but so I'm gonna cheat and tell you that this verse 18 is gonna conclude this idea of adoption, but I'm also gonna tell you that in our next passage, our next section, it's also gonna be grouped with the next paragraph as well. Four, which looks back. For, it also looks forward. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be, what's the word? Compared. With the glory. Same idea as resurrection that is to be revealed to us. This is a glorious comparison. Look specifically down to verse 23 for a moment. This idea of adoption comes back up. Not only this, but we, all, we saw also ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we, like the creation, grown with ourselves, within ourselves, and waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. That's important. We have been adopted, but we also are said that we're waiting eagerly for our adoption. What is that talking about? It's our inheritance. That's the difference. We're no more adopted then than we are now in terms of our relationship with God, but we will be more adopted then than now in terms of our enjoyment of that adoption. That reality should give us, I think, what is the, the most useful, best, divinely inspired tool for you to get through your hour your day, your week, your month, your year. And that's the concept of comparing. He tells us very clear here. I consider that the sufferings, oh, hang on, we're looking at life. This is perspective. My suffering, the things that are going wrong for me, the things that are going wrong in my family, the things that have gone wrong in my finances or with my friends, all that I see, the suffering that are associated, sufferings associated with this world, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, it's very interesting that he says they're only associated with this world, this time, this life, are not worthy. Very interesting way to say that. I would have probably said should not be compared. Paul didn't say that. They're not worthy to be compared. 
They are so far in dignity and in ontology and in reality and in experience. They are so far below what's coming in the future. You, they're not even worthy to be mentioned in the same sentence. Not even worthy to be compared to what? Remember the 3D picture? To the resurrection, to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That great day when we'll be adopted. Finally, we will be finally home. Do you use this gift? Do you use this power of comparison? 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying. You ever feel like that? Wow, did I feel like that on this time change morning. The alarm rang and I put my feet on the ground and I felt like my outer man is decaying. Yet our inner man, who we really are, is being renewed day by day. That adopted part of us by God. Then I love this. For momentary light affliction... It's not worthy to be compared. Momentary light affliction. Now, when you understand what Paul went through, for him to call this momentary light affliction is no small thing. Beaten up, left for dead, forsaken, shipwrecked, almost drowning, snake bitten. uh, uh, Momentary light affliction. No big deal stuff. It's producing for us. Do you see the doctrine again? An eternal weight of glory far beyond all, what's the word? Comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are not, which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul is saying the same thing there. Do you employ the power of comparison? Are you training your mind to constantly thinking then and now, now and then, suffering and glory? So what's our takeaway from that? It's back to Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Remember, we're co-heirs with Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, eternity, the resurrection, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For I consider, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What's the whole purpose, the whole point? Compare, compare, compare. Measure this life against the next. If you don't know Christ, there's no comparison. If you think it's, if you think the suffering and the inconveniences and the disappointments are bad in this life now, It's exponentially amplified forever without relief in a Christless eternity. It's hard to imagine what kind of fool would say no to that. Hope after 
death, glory, the glory to be revealed. I just want to ask you, I want to beg you, I want to plead with you, do not neglect comparison because the neglect of comparison will will cause you to say, this is it. You'll be with the Sadducees and the Epicureans and you'll say, this life is it. I'm just gonna enjoy them as much as I can and you won't see the fact that this is nothing compared to forever with Christ under the rule of God in heaven. One of the things that's very important, if I can connect us to what we're about to do, is that Paul told the Corinthians he says, when you, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, just remember this, that you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes, until the resurrection. 